Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hoenk, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Osama Himani, CIO at the firm. With emerging market geopolitics taking center stage in 2022, in Russia, China, and Latin America, we asked this week's guest, Rachel Zimba, to come on the podcast to share her thoughts. Rachel is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. Her research focuses on the interlinkages between economics, finance, and security issues, focusing on sanctions, economic resilience, and the role of state-owned investors, including sovereign wealth funds. She founded Zimba Insights, a macro research firm that focuses on connecting policy and macro risks for relevance to emerging market investors. Thank you, Rachel, for taking the time to talk to us. I think before we get into the discussion, maybe you can tell us a bit about your background and how you came to focus on on geopolitics and economic sanctions. Thanks very much for having me. It's always great to chat with you about markets and the the state of the world. So I I started out focusing on geopolitics because of my interest in international relations, foreign affairs, I was a State Department intern. I briefly worked for both US and Canadian governments. Um, But I quickly became interested in the intersection between international relations, international economics, the way in which political dynamics were impacting economic and market decisions. And so early on when I started working on um, uh, Rubini Global Economics, I started to track petrodollars and sovereign wealth funds. So the involvement of state actors in capital markets, tracking energy uh, revenues in a sense, um, in the ground, you know, sort of out of the ground as, as, and the like. And from there, I think it all stemmed. The sanctions piece and restriction, I think came naturally because I was tracking the energy markets and government flows, and so quickly had to learn what these measures were vis-a-vis uh, Iran, and then more recently, uh, Russia, a whole variety. Um, but in my mind, sometimes people ask me, well, how can you be an expert on things like sovereign wealth funds, sanctions, all of these? And I say, at the end of the day, the common interest is really around how governments are trying to mold and shape markets use their tools for restriction, use their tools for sort of positive additive change, trying to develop things as well. So in a sense, it's on a continuum. Um, And then of course, geopolitics being so important to global macro, but especially to global commodities and the energy trade, I think naturally, uh, naturally connects. So let's get started on what's really the key geopolitical story at the moment. Could you give us an overview or primer on what Russia's current interest in Ukraine is all about? Sure. Uh, great, great question. Um, I should start by saying that one of the strategic interests that Russia has in wanting to limit the encroachment of NATO into what it sees as sphere of influence, long historical connections in Russian narratives about the role of Ukraine as being, and particularly Kyiv, as being central to its own history. Um, but part of the problem right now is it's not really clear to leaders in the West exactly what Putin's endgame is. What would he see as a good outcome? What would he sort of, um, and uh, clearly there is a desire to have a weaker, more pliant government in Ukraine, to have more influence through, you know, through the region, but exactly how much cost the Russians are, are willing to incur for that 
Um, you know, Putin has been very articulate about a set of demands, uh, weakening NATO, weakening a uh, range of a sort of U.S. and European unity kind of across, you know, Eurasia. Um, but that question mark of exactly what would be seen as a good outcome is a bit murky. And there, I think, complicates the sort of West, you know, the, the Western response. What I really find perplexing is that he, he keeps insisting on basically excluding the possibility of NATO membership for Ukraine at a time when, when it's clear that many NATO members don't want the Ukraine as a member. I, this isn't something, he's insisting on some excluding something which is not even on the table. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're completely right. And to some extent, what ends up happening is the more that he pushes on it, the more that some NATO members do want to extend to Ukraine. Um, there are a number of others, and Putin has been very uh, active uh, ver verbally in uh, talking to France, talking to other countries and saying, well, you know, isn't it good that Ukraine is not a member of NATO? Because if it was, you would be directly, you know, facing conflict with the Russians um, and the like. That was very much in this sort of treatise that he wrote about Ukraine over the summer, I guess his, his COVID-19 pandemic project. Um, but ultimately that dynamic of, you know, very few NATO members actually want to have Ukraine as a member but they don't want to rule that out. And they also don't want Russia to be dictating and choosing who is a NATO member. So I, I do think there is a dynamic that the more they push, the more that um, hawkish members and even more centrists would say, well, maybe, maybe we should, because if we don't show solidarity, if we don't push back for these values that connect NATO members, um, maybe there'll be even more sort of divide. So it is a it's a type of catch twenty two, I think, sort of present here. And I think it's a threat that um, you know is, is is backfiring to some extent. While we haven't seen full creation and and consolidation of NATO into a fighting force, we have many NATO members who don't want to supply military equipment to Ukraine directly. We have seen quite even more pacifist NATO members uh, sending uh, troops and equipment and, you know, trying to bolster NATO members, particularly in the Baltics, um, to a degree that I don't think Putin anticipated. And that I think has sort of, um, is, is one of the reasons he might be looking for an off-ramp. The question mark is more whether the sort of increasing sort of push, particularly from the U.S., from the U.S. Congress and the like, might box him in to an extent where he thinks that some of the economic costs will be there re regardless. Is it at all possible that Russia's real agenda might be less NATO-related and could be something else completely together, something like potentially an interest in Belarus? I would say that Russia does have a variety of interests in the, in, in the region, um, but uh, the net result, I mean, Belarus for a long time was playing the West off against Russia, um, has very much, I think, chose to be in the Russian camp, uh, dynamics of, uh, the coup there, um, ha and sanctions that, you know, very much transatlantic United sanctions against Belarus, um, have, if anything, made it much more reliant on Russia. In practice, the willing the interconnections between the countries are are much greater. Um, 
you know, I think to some extent the pressure on uh, Ukraine, I mean, I think is just part of a, of a reassertion of a sphere of influence. More generally, I think we can look and say that uh, Putin has, you know, had a long-term vision of trying to sort of restore um, Russia's influence and in neighbors and maintain it, but also has been very opportunistic and, and in, in foreign policy, but also with energy uh, policy. Um, I think we only have to look at some of the events in Kazakhstan uh, earlier this year to see a dynamic where uh, a, a sort of local protest turned into an elite struggle, turned into Russia-backed CSTO forces uh, reinforcing the government and, and sort of coming down, at least for now, on one side of that equation. But the net result has been uh, more meaningful Russian influence in the country. How far that will go is an open question. China's still major trading partner. There are still some Western interests there. But overall, I think we look at a picture where um, Russia as provider of capital, Russia as standard setter, um, as sort of provider of uh, mig you know, migrant jobs through, through a, a variety of the region, there's, there's, there's a range of influence um, and the like. The other set of interests that are underpinning this are also one around Russia's energy dominance, right? Um, while the U.S. government might overstate how much revenue the oil, the oil and gas industry brings to Russia today, they, they do have some numbers that maybe date back to 2014, um, still Russia, major oil producer, major gas producer, obviously Europe very reliant on those supplies, in some ways even more so, Russia sees um, some degree of an existential threat coming from the way in which Europe and to some extent the US are defining the energy transition. Russia would be a country targeted under CBAM, the European Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, they are facing more challenges getting capital to develop new LNG projects. Even some of those ongoing, like LNG2, have you know struggled to find some of the financing as European bilateral and national financing institutions have said, well, we don't want to fund fossil fuels anymore. Um, so I think there is a push. Um, you know, Russia could benefit being part of, for example, more green hydrogen production, you know, batteries, a wide range of critical minerals. But right now, I think they see some of the new rules and regulations and systems coming out of Brussels, coming out of, to some extent, Washington as being a threat to how they, they do business. And at the same time, we have seen an energy uh, and power crisis uh, in Europe that is partly, you know, again, Russia has, um, you know, sort of uh, exacerbated some of that via refusing to, uh, you know, sort of by only providing the what was contracted long term, not providing the spot market, not refilling storage. There, there are a variety of, you know, stories here, but I do think some of the pressure um, and dynamics were, of course, tied into Russia wanting Europe to approve, or Europe and especially Germany to approve Nord Stream 2, which in turn would re reduce their reliance and 
the leverage of Ukraine. So I think there are multiple interests at play here. Um, but Russia is trying to sort of be, be opportunistic where, you know, sort of where they can. Interesting the way, the way you're putting it, because as the relationship gets more adversarial, Russia is in effect excluding itself from, from new, uh, from involvement in new technologies and new projects that can, that in which it can be an important contributor to Europe's energy security and Europe's energy future, right? I mean, it's, it's almost... It, 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 is, it is behaving in a way that's leading people to just diversify away from Russia. Suppose a year from now, we, we're, you know, we're looking at the paper and we just read that you know, Belarus and Russia has, have formed a federation. Um, and suddenly Russia is a bigger, much bigger country and, 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 uh, and, and in, surrounded by, by NATO members. Can NATO, um, can Europe do anything? Should Europe or, or NATO actually do anything? And, and what can they do? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there are things that NATO can do. Um, uh, I think the challenge vis-a-vis Belarus, but also vis-a-vis Russia, is that the kind of things they can do are far from costless to... Uh, key NATO members, particularly those in Europe, but even, you know, sort of even the U.S. and others that are more um, remote. Now, some of that is because some of the easy, easier measures um, were done uh, economic sanctions wise, and that's not the only set of tools um, were done uh, in the in the past. Russia has become uh, more resilient to sanctions. There, there are costs. Um, this cutting off from certain degrees of investment, um, being left with, for example, a reliance perhaps on either more indigenous or Chinese technology bears its cost. Russia has been accepting as a cost of sanctions proofing lower growth than it might otherwise be, be achieving, um, you know, sort of very you know, defensive economic posture. Um, but has been willing to do so. Um, of course, one of the challenges, if you were to see an even more uh, connected, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of nation state uh, between Russia and Belarus beyond their sort of customs union and some of the other connections that already exist, you're talking about a country that is would be one of the largest suppliers of fertilizer inputs to the world. I mean, these countries are already large players, sort of, you know, Russia, uh, Belarus, and Canada really sort of dominate the potash market, for example. Um, you're also talking about, uh, of course, uh, across the, the minerals and, 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 and mining sector, energy, you know, oil and gas. So I think there are um, both economic tools that could be used, or also our, our you know, our, our military ones. I guess the other question mark is, what would this new entity be uh, aiming to do in terms of further expansion? Right. We already saw Belarus trying to weaponize um, migrant flows, um, invited inviting people from Afghanistan, from the Middle East to come to Belarus and amass on the Polish border. That led to Europe saying, well, we're going to impose more, you know, sort of more, more sanctions. Um, you know, we're going to weapon, we're going to make it a crime to weaponize migration. That could have a whole lot of implications and is a whole other story, even when we think about if you have a set of sanctions against 
forced my uh, uh, migration and the like, think about other parts of the world, including North Africa, where that might be a tool that that raises questions and concerns. But but I but I digress. Um, there are tools, um, but there would be you know there would be be, be cost to using them, as indeed there are costs to using some of the tools that. Um, the transatlantic partners are really trying to set up and threaten in case of further invasion of Russia into Ukraine. Um, keeping that coalition together is very much sort of priority number one for uh, the Biden administration these days. And they face challenges both within the alliance, but also within the U.S. domestically, both those that think they should be more aggressive and those who think they should be less aggressive. Um, you got both of those camps in, uh, and definitely in the Republican Party these days. But, 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 but I digress. So Russia's economy is less dependent on foreign financing uh, than many. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in general, it's it's less exposed to sanctions, right? Um, because of this, could any new sanctions actually work? And uh, what potentially could these sanctions look like? Sure. So uh, one of the challenges when we think about sanctions working is uh, it's much easier as, a, as an economist to sit here and I can say, well, this is how it might impact their balance of payments. This is how it might impact their flows. It's a lot harder to get at. Does it work in terms of policy change? Right. And that leads to a whole sanctions literature about when does it really work? Um, what are the externalities? What are the sort of intended and unintended consequences in Russia's case, um, as in, in other countries, you've seen certain uh, increase in the power of dominant actors. So, for example, some of the larger state banks, some of the state sort of institutions, uh, it impacts power balances. Um, it, but, you know, could they work in terms of inflicting significant economic pain? Um, could, they, you know, yes. Uh, um, uh, despite the fact of Russia's resilience. I'm thinking about uh, sanctions that would be put in place on some of the medium-sized Russian, you know, Russian banks. Uh, Russia's adjusted to some of the sovereign debt measures that are already in place, but it wouldn't be great if, for example, secondary trading um, on local debt and external debt was implemented. Um, some of the other measures that are on the table right now are export controls of uh, microelectronics and technology. That's what I think one of the areas that um, the US still sees perhaps some asymmetric power vis-a-vis Russia. They also have asymmetric power relating to the US dollar-based financial system, but they are reluctant to use all the power they have because of the potential impacts on oil and gas uh, supplies. And that's one of the reasons that I don't think they'll go through with any threat of disconnecting major Russian financial institutions from SWIFT. Um, So there are measures. The question mark is that there could be a fair amount of blowback. Um, You know, Russia has had time to prepare. Um, Russia and sort of Russia's running a fiscal surplus. The increase in oil and gas prices, of course, have helped that. Um, Russia also... Um, took the opportunity in the midst of the 2014 uh, 15 crisis to finally move to a more flexible exchange rate, inflation targeting, and has done very orthodox economic policy. Um, you know, really one of the standouts in many ways in emerging markets. 
Um, so, so, you know, those of course have come with a cost in the nature of, of, of lower growth and lower investment and the like. Um, but yes, it does mean that it's, you know, you need to use more extensive measures to um, have an economic effect. And still there's that question mark of, does it bring the, you know, does it bring the policy change? Um, and that one, I think the, the jury's still out on. I do think that some degree of transatlantic coordination um, could lead to working or at least limiting or sort of mitigating, you know, the extent. I think a combination of the somewhat stronger than expected military response uh, to bolster NATO members, as well as more meaningful coordination on sanctions might mean that some kind of a hybrid, you know, warfare of some sort might be more likely than um, you know, a kinet, you know, kinetic conflict. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. This is a real, this is a real test. Um, you know, this is a real test both of sort of Russian interests and, and what they're willing to undergo, but also the willingness of European, um, European countries to use some of these levers. And um, particularly given that within Europe, there are real differences of opinion about what the triggers for any meaningful economic measures would be. You know, when I think of, as you're mentioning, things like sanctions in the form of export, um, you know, export restrictions of certain technologies, et cetera, to Russia, I mean, this is this is really the sort of stuff that has potentially the, the biggest uh, cost on the long-term future of Russia. Yes. Um, but it is also the sort of stuff that doesn't have a very big cost in terms of in the near term on on growth and and hence on the the perceptions of Putin domestically and and clearly I mean he's he's influenced in a big way by domestic mm-hmm. opinion so it, it 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 sounds to me like something that that is indeed damaging but only people at the top will understand it. But if they don't want to change their, their behavior, maybe to move away a bit from Russia and, and to think about the sanctions now that we're talking mm-hmm. about, about export restraints and, and that sort of stuff. Russia has been cozying up on, on, with China. Does Russia have anything to offer China beyond energy? It strikes me, and maybe I hope this comment is not too flippant, it's a bit like... Like, you know, a few years ago when we used to see these BRICS summits, right? These four countries would sit together, <laughs> have a summit, uh, issue a communique, but it's not clear what they have in common other than that they're big and emerging and, and they have very diverse interests. So it's, there isn't much depth to that relationship. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. It's a good question. And, and as you say, in that context, especially the BRICS, it really was about um, three or four countries and their relationship with China. I mean, obviously, you know, India was a very different sort of uh, set. Um, so there are some things that theoretically um, Russia could, could offer. So, you know, beyond the sort of resource uh, dynamics, um, but China's own interest in developing and staying cutting edge across uh, a whole wide range of, of technology, not only sort of AI, but, you know, production. I mean, Russia 
even with the ruble at the prices it's at, is not going to be a source of cheap labor like Ethiopia is, or a place that one can sort of um, outsource uh, higher, you know, so, uh, you know, sort of more polluting carbon intensive, you know, industries. So, though, though maybe there might be some uh, cryptocurrency mining that is <laughs> moving, you know, sort of moving there. Um, uh, there's been a migration across Eurasia, you know, crackdowns in China and Kazakhstan and, and maybe or maybe not Russia. But but now 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 I'm being a bit flippant. Um, ultimately, I think there is still an element where Russia is more reliant on China in the reverse, in part because China doesn't want to be too reliant on any one other country. That's particularly the case with their oil and gas and critical um, uh, commodity imports, right? We see uh, China explicitly trying to never become too reliant on Saudi Arabia or Iran or Russia or, well, back when they used to produce more oil in the open markets, Venezuela. Um, uh, so there's a balancing act there. There also is uh, just, you know, sort of distrust um, that is still present. Russia could be an important test case, one of many, for internationalizing the ECNY and some of the payment systems that China has been developing. China be unlikely to just want to sort of integrate that with Russia. And Russia has its own domestic payment system that has really sort of taken off domestically, but it doesn't have a lot of foreign links. Um, there are test examples like Sparabank just launched a, a remittance transfer program with uh, direct to Alipay. There are things that are being done. Um, and both countries have a common interest in creating alternative payment systems that might have less of a US dollar nexus that might be independent. Um, but I do think that China would be reluctant to see too much control to another country, including, um, you know, including Russia. Um, you know, there are definitely some common interests, some, some long-term sort of trajectory. We haven't seen an awful lot, despite some of the basic um, materials and basic research expertise in Russia and in biotech and a variety of things. We haven't seen a lot of collaboration. It's notable that both countries rushed to, for example, create their own uh, vaccines. They're re you know, China was not one of the countries that Russia collaborated on. Like they, they set up production facilities across Latin America. They shared some intellectual property. Um, there really hasn't been a lot of biotechnology kind of collaboration between the countries, despite the fact that both have as a priority. So I do think this Chinese focus on the domestic part of the dual circulation policy probably limits uh, where Russia fits in. Now they too, of course, will be sort of, you know, you know sort of opportunistic. Um, one broader question, I think you're right on the export controls piece that it's more of a long-term thing, more subtle, um, but there's an interesting potential implication there to China. I mean, China was the test case. Huawei was the test case. Um, this might be a bit broader, but of course what the US would be trying to do is to extra, unilaterally, extraterritorially use the fact that there's US intellectual property involved even in chips and microelectronics built in China that would be going to Russia 
And so very clearly there would also be a Chinese common interest with Russia uh, that pushes back against the U.S. ability to do unilateral or, or even coordinated with NATO allies, but extraterritorial measures. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on a long list of Chinese companies. Um, what do you think the outcome is here that the U.S. expects? Sure. So, you know, very much linked to this question mark of China you know, pushing back, China and Russia stand out as the countries that account for the most sanctioned uh, sanctioned entities. Um, you know, Iran is up there as well. Belarus is coming. But in 2021, um, China and Russia vied for the lead. Um, a lot of the more meaningful economic ones have actually been around supply chains in Xinjiang and relating to Uyghurs, relating to human rights issues. There have also been others, um, but are maybe a little more symbolic relating to Hong Kong and, and the like. They haven't really impacted um, the economic trends as much. Where Xinjiang is concerned, though, the U.S. has used not only a range of uh, financial sanctions, but also has used its customs and trade authorities to effectively um, block a wide range of goods if they have a production link to Xinjiang. They've also set up by a sort of new legislation, even more expectation that companies know their own supply chains. Now, a lot of information is available in the public domain, but things are starting to get more murky. And I mentioned this just because the expectation that the U.S. Treasury, that their counterparts in other countries have towards businesses to know their suppliers, to know the supply chains, to know if they might touch a designated entity or the like, there is a lot more compliance costs. And, and those are really sort of going up, especially as more countries get into the sanctions and counter sanctions game. So I do think where China is concerned, there are a couple of different factors that the U.S. is going for. Of course, there is an attempt to exclude forced labor from the supply chain um, and, and the like. There's also a real concern about U.S. capital supporting China's military industrial complex. Right. A big part of the sanctions that were imposed in the Trump administration and then reimposed with a maybe more stronger legal backing in the Biden administration were about um, military linked companies. Right. There have been delistings. There might be more delistings. The U.S. is really trying to pay more attention to what's the outbound investment. Now, where China is concerned that there are these foreign policy elements, these geostrategic elements, but there's also, of course, concerns about technology transfer, intellectual property, all of these, you know, sort of uh, bugbears. Um, and so I do think there is this broader goal that they would like to have less Chinese inputs, especially those linked to the government and the U.S. Uh, supply and investment chain. The challenge is that um, it's not easy to build redundancy in global supplies, and that if anything, you've actually seen an increase in the total volume and especially in the total dollar value of imports that China uh, that, that that China has, has sent to the U.S. or exports China sent to the U.S. over the last over the last two years. At the same time, that if anything, China's bought less from the U.S. or failed to increase despite the big phase one trade deal. Um, so 
I think that element of sort of connection between not only sanctions, but also trying to remake trade um, standards and other things like that, one of the broader goals is this sort of pushing back on China's economic influence. And that's something that uh, different, you know, U.S. allies, particularly those in Europe and elsewhere, have, have different perspectives on. Right. So while the U.S. might be trying to pour a lot of money into building more semiconductor home and Europe is, too, Germany has a somewhat different perspective on their relationships with China. So there are areas where U.S. and uh, European you know, G7 allies might have some common concerns, um, but they, they look at it a different way. Overall, though, I do think this is an environment where it's notable to me that measures that can be sold as combating China are among the few things that have broad bipartisan support in Congress right now. Uyghur Force Protection Act passed with a landslide. Uh, both the House and Senate have voted on what's called the America Competes Act that spends more money at home to try to push out sort of goods from China. This is something that at least political leaders think that Americans uh, want to do. Um, whether it will be sort of effective and how it will match with the other goals like fighting inflation, I think is, is, is much more, you know, much more mixed. Um, you know, it's, uh, that, that's uh, something we're going to be watching. And I think from a market perspective, it just makes for both more compliance costs and so on. And it also could add, you know, sort of could, could, could add volatility as um, you know, it's harder to predict what the rules and, and standards. It, it are. sounds to me, if 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 we're t looking at it this way, that, that what you're basically saying it's in terms of you know behavioral change issues regarding labor, etc., probably not achieve anything. The sanctions are just there mm -hmm. as uh, virtue signaling, <laughs> if I may use that word. Um, uh, some of them but, definitely, yeah. Yeah, right. This is this is what it yeah. is. But um, some some increased costs to businesses, but not a whole lot more. I mean, realistically, what can we achieve as an outcome? Not a whole lot more. Is that a good way of summarizing? Quick thoughts on on that point. Yeah, a lot of the, especially human rights related measures, there are a number that are virtue signaling, especially those, if any, from some of the sort of US allies and the like. Um, that being said, I do think there is something I'm watching for closely, which is the implementation of past measures, particularly around the silicon and polysilicon supply chain out of Xinjiang that is theoretically blocked but a lot of it comes not directly to the US, it goes through Asian um, countries, uh, South Korea, Southeast Asia, elsewhere um, in making some of the solar panels, there is a question mark there. And then of course, even if it quote unquote has an effect, what's gonna be the impact on US other, you know, other priorities? So I do think this use and recourse to more sort of territorial based restrictions, this empowering of uh, homeland security and customs, you know, authorities will have, you know, will definitely sort of got the system to some extent. Now, what I think, and it's a long-term dynamic, I am always a little bit more uh, glad to see 
when the U.S. is willing to sort of use tools that are trying to uh, strengthen human capital, strengthen sort of long-term productivity at home, rather than just trying to say, well, you know, we want to restrict, we don't want to have these, these um, materials come in. Um, but these, these things don't change overnight. And so I do think one of the things that's happened, and we've seen this more in the Biden administration than Trump administration, but maybe it was shifting, was this, you know, let's invest more in STEM R&D, let's invest more in some of these, you know, critical technologies, getting off the ground is, you know, is, is tough. Um, and it's, it's a long-term, you know, it's a long-term, you know, dynamic. Uh, the other element is to what extent the U.S. is going to pay more attention to the fact, uh, making it less of a haven for um, illicit funds and offshore shell companies and the like. The U.S. is not the only country that has a soft underbelly of, you know, attracting capital and, 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 and so on. Um, but there is sort of a question mark of which capitals crack down on whether there will be, um, you know, whether there's uh, uh, whether cracking down on some areas make it more difficult to fund sort of technology projects, how much a lack of cooperation with Chinese entities might reduce uh, intellectual property theft, but might also impact uh, you know, sort of research and other dynamics. None of these measures are, are, are costless, but I do generally think that efforts that try to focus on productivity growth, on, on you know, sort of addressing some of the infrastructure gaps, those are going to be the things that pay the most, um, you know, the, the most dividends. Maybe, maybe we can step, step back from China, and this was a very interesting analysis, and, and, and talk more broadly, uh, since we are on the topic of sanctions, regarding U.S. sanctions uh, uh, on, on, uh, in other regions. And here specifically, I'm thinking of, of the energy market and, and Venezuela, Iran, uh, other countries where, where sanctions have had a, a much bigger impact in terms of production. Uh, have been more yeah. effective, I should say. Um, I'm I'm curious to know where what your thoughts are uh, about where things might be going in view of where where the oil market seems to be heading now. You know what are the prospects for you know changes on that front that might might lead to increased supplies? Yeah, yeah, it's a. Uh, uh... I think when a lot of people look at it, they say, you know, as the Biden administration gets more and more worried about gas price, uh, gasoline prices, I should say, petrol prices, they're worried about gas prices as well. Um, one of the things is to remember that, you know, sort of U.S. Uh, restrictions and maximum pressure on Iran and Venezuela um, do constrict a lot of what OPEC plus can do, especially now that we're at a point where the only spare capacity is really sort of in Russia and in um, some of the GCC countries. Um, you know, talks can you know continue on as 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 we're talking. Obviously, with Iran, um, they're really running up against a deadline. I'm sort of still in a I'll believe it when I see it mode, um, just because I think that there there maybe has been some move where Iran's concerned a willingness to return to the JCPOA softening domestic pressure. If anything, the, the sort of rhetoric in the U.S. Is, is from Congress has hardened, partly because of what's going on with Russia, right? The number of senators that want to review a 
return to the JCPOA has gone up. But there, there is a sort of, I mean, this is something the Biden administration came into office hoping to kind of, you know, reset in this way to address other regional issues and definitely uh, ramp up and re return of Iran would be, Iranian, you know, fuel supply would be, you know, would be welcome for those looking at tightening of markets. It also would be welcome uh, because the the sort of lack of transparency about how much Iran is really producing, what's going into different condensates and different liquids, uh, what's been going on with sort of smuggling makes it kind of quite hard for us to figure out what supply and, and demand really is. So, you know, possibility in the second half, but I'm not holding my breath. Venezuela seems, though, um, seems to, you know, there really isn't sort of a, a new plan of what to do there. I think partly because of divides within the opposition, this whole attempt by many governments to recognize the Guaido government sort of a shadow, you know, government sort of in exile didn't really pan out. Um, there have been a few measures here and there, you know, uh, trial balloons from Chevron to try to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can get our money back from the Venezuelans. I think, I think ultimately there's a political decision that would need to be taken in the White House um, regarding Venezuela that I just don't think they, you know, they've decided what to do yet. Um, I do think it's it's maybe emblematic of broader question marks about the reacti the, the focus on China and the reactivity to what's going on in Russia and elsewhere, um, as well as the pandemic-related supply chain issues, have probably meant that more generally Latin America has not been on the agenda as much in Washington, unless or until a sort of around migration issues and the like. Um, so, you know, but ultimately, uh, I, I think we're some ways away from, uh, uh, sort of Venezuela coming back into the market. Um, the longer though, that that, uh, you know, remains frozen and, it, and it's not just the oil. It's also, what about the sort of unsustainable debts, the sanctions have sort of frozen, you know, all the sovereign debt um, markets in a sense as well, like not getting to any kind of debt restructuring, which obviously would be messy in the best of times. But it also means that Venezuela is one of those countries that can't participate in any energy transition initiative. Same thing with Iran and maybe to some extent with Russia as well. But more and more as there is a focus on trying to think about how do we sort of live more sustainably? How do we adjust? Um, some of these big energy producers, carbon intensive countries, even if they're restrained by sanctions, um, they're probably going to need to be part of uh, whatever package and adjustment. And so that it's another example of how do the kind of short term efforts um, impact on the sort of longer term policy goals. And we know that this sort of freezing of some of those uh, conflicts in place, of course, adds to instability to Venezuela's neighbors and and, and elsewhere. And it's a never-ending so, humanitarian crisis. Exactly.
Well, Rachel, on that note, I thank you so much for this uh, tour d'horizon. You've taken us from, from Russia to, to, uh, to, to China, to, to Latin America. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Always great to chat with you too. Thanks for having me. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.